Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. We have today with us Luke Goodrich. Luke is a religious freedom attorney at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which argued the Supreme Court cases for Little Sisters of the Poor and for Hobby Lobby, uh, among other things. He can be seen explaining religious liberty in the law on many outlets, Fox News, uh, ABC, CNN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. He teaches constitutional law at University of Utah, and he lives in Salt Lake City. Welcome, welcome, Luke. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. All right. Now, our, our, our topic here is, your our ostensible topic is a new book that you've written, Free to Believe, The Battle over Religious Liberty in America, which just came out. Now, Luke, you're, you're a very busy guy. You, you, you got cases coming in all the time. The Beckett Fund, and especially in the last few years, doesn't have much time to, to spend uh, sending, sending their, their lawyers to write books. How did you find the time? What motivated you to, to write this book? Why do we need this book? You should be in court. <laughs> yeah, well, as you mentioned, I, I have been in court a lot over the last decade, and it's been a great privilege to stand shoulder to shoulder with folks like the Little Sisters of the Poor and, and the Green family of Hobby Lobby as we took their cases to the Supreme Court. And there are really two things that motivated me to write this book. Uh, one, my, my church community asked me to do some teaching on religious freedom from a theological perspective. And that was a real challenge for me because I'd been in court on these issues, thinking about them from a purely legal perspective. Uh, but it was really refreshing to have to think about them from a theological perspective and also you know, equip everyday Christians to understand why religious freedom matters. Uh, and then the second thing was going to a gathering of Christian leaders as the Supreme Court was considering legalizing same-sex marriage in the Obergefell decisions. And, and these were leaders of uh, Catholic institutions, uh, evangelical denominations, universities, social service organizations. And in that room, uh, the fear around religious freedom was palpable. Uh, folks were just very concerned about what was going to happen after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And there was a real lack of knowledge. What, what did you find it? Did you find in the subsequent years their fear was justified? Uh, well, some of the fears have played out. Some of the fear was, you know, not really based on knowledge. So, so that's why I've written Free to Believe is to take my decade of experience on the front lines, boil it down in a crystal clear way, so that ordinary Christians can understand why does religious freedom matter? How is it really threatened today in our modern culture and in, in the legal system? And what can we do practically to preserve it? You begin with a distinction uh, between pilgrims, martyrs, and beginners. What's the distinction? Yeah, so I think a lot of Christians, both Catholics and evangelicals, start thinking about religious freedom primarily as a legal or a political issue. And I think the mistake there is that it's first and foremost a theological issue and a philosophical issue. So pilgrims are Christians, you know, they tend to be conservative politically. And they, if you ask them why religious freedom matters, they'd say, well, it's in the Constitution and it preserves our, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage and it preserves freedom for the spread of the gospel. Uh, martyrs, on the other hand, they would lean more progressive politically. You ask them why religious freedom matters, you know, they might say, yeah, why does religious freedom matter? That's kind of a culture war issue. We don't really have religious freedom problems today. You know, let's focus on issues of social justice and let go of this conservative culture war. 
Uh, and then you have beginners who, you know, they're just kind of waking up to the issue of religious freedom. Uh, they may be hearing more about it in the news. Sometimes they're they're tired of the sniping between the, the pilgrims and the martyrs, or, or they just haven't given it much thought. And all three of these camps, you know, they're, uh, you know don't mean to overgeneralize, but a lot of Christians tend to, to fall into one of these camps. Uh, they haven't really thought deeply about religious freedom as a theological or a philosophical issue. So that's where I start in my book, Free to Believe, is where does religious freedom come from uh, scripturally and, and theologically, and then from there move into the legal and cultural issues we're facing today. You say that violations of religious liberty are much more than an infringement of legal rights. They are actually, quote, a form of injustice. Why, why is that distinction important? Yeah, you, you can see this from the Church's teaching in Dignitatis Humanae. Uh, you can also see it, you know, evangelicals get to it through uh, looking at Scripture. And it comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. And that means a lot of things. One of the things it means is human beings are created with a capacity for relationship with God. And we're actually born with a thirst for a transcendent relationship with God. And then at the same time, we see in Scripture and in church teaching that God is pursuing a relationship with humanity. You know, he's entering a covenant with Abraham. Uh, he's pursuing the people of Israel. And then he's even sending his own son in the form of a, in, incarnate as, a, as an infant to uh, recapture relationship with humanity. So we're born with this thirst for relationship with God. Uh, God is pursuing relationship with us. And yet, God never uses coercion. He never, he never coerces anyone into relationship with him. We also have the capacity to embrace or reject relationship with God. And so when the government intervenes, you know, inserts its coercive power into that relationship between God and man, it's usurping its God-ordained role. Uh, it's even elevating itself above God. And in that sense, uh, a violation of religious freedom is a fundamental injustice. You know, it just occurs to me, is this one reason the founders put freedom of religion as the very first right enumerated in the First Amendment? Absolutely. I mean, there were some historical uh, accidents, you could call them, for why the First Amendment was first. There, there were two amendments before it that didn't get ratified. Uh, but you see this in the writings of, of Madison, where he talks about the duty to the Creator uh, being uh, prior, uh, both in order of time and in the, the degree of obligation, than our duty to the state. And so in that sense, you know, religious freedom is, is rooted in the idea that there is something higher than the government, and there's, there is a realm in which the government does not have authority to insert its power. And that's a foundational starting point for religious freedom. And, and is this why, as you say, religious freedom is not just a right in itself, it is a fundamental right that protects other rights? That's exactly right. And, and I try to lay out in, in Free to Believe in the book uh, multiple reasons why uh, religious freedom is important and should be important even to people who don't share our uh, first principles. Uh, so one of those reasons is you know, that religious freedom benefits society. And this is an argument the founders repeatedly made that our democratic self-government uh, depends on moral virtue, and moral virtue requires religion and religious freedom allows religion to flourish. 
Uh, so religious freedom benefits society by producing the type of moral virtue, you know, whether that's religious schools, hospitals, nursing homes, orphanages, you know, that, that thick civil society that enables democratic self-government. A uh, second reason everyone should care about religious freedom is that it, it is a protection for all of our other rights. As we were just discussing, it starts from the premise that there's something higher than the government, that the government can't take away. And that's really a foundation for all of our other rights, whether free speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom from unlawful search and seizure. Uh, it, it places a, a profound limit on the power of government. No, 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 no Luke. All, all our rights come from the government. <laughs> right. We we had a we had a case. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, defending the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, there's an atheist group that sued to take under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, and the the federal government during the Obama administration uh, defended the pledge on the ground that the words under God were just uh, ceremonial deism. They you know they'd just been around so long they kind of lost any religious meaning. Uh, but but we came in and said, wait a minute. Now, the words under God have profound meaning, and there is a statement of the founders' political philosophy that government is under God. And so you keep those words in the pledge, you know, not because they've just lost their meaning, but because they remind us that the government is, in a very real sense, under God, and our rights come from something higher than the state. You saw that Nancy Pelosi yesterday, we're, we're, we're recording now, one day after the House uh, impeachment, uh, uh, broad impeachment vote, did Nancy Pelosi open Congress with the Pledge of Allegiance? <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully they'll all remember that that there's something higher than the government. That that that's right. That's right. You know, uh, let me come back to the the beginners that you mentioned. Is it, on, on some level are these challenges good for beginners in that it it shakes them out of little maybe some complacency? It throws them back upon those fundamental questions of where they stand with God. Yeah, we, we do have a great moment right now. I mean, I mean, when there's a violation of religious freedom, that is something to, to grieve. I mean, it's, it's an injustice. Uh, but it's also a wake-up call uh, to get back to what are we really fighting for here. And I think, you know, pilgrims tend to fight for religious liberty uh, primarily as a, as, a, as a front in the culture war. And sometimes it's, it's religious freedom is treated as kind of a, a tool for fighting a rearguard action on other issues like abortion or marriage, and obviously those issues are profoundly important, but this is really an opportunity for us uh, as, as the church to recapture the issue of religious freedom as a basic issue of justice and fight for it as a matter, not just of our own self-interest, but as a matter of the common good. And that can really transform the way we enter into a variety of religious freedom conflicts. You note that governments should never, quote, usurp God's authority. What's the worst, what's the worst usurpation of that kind that you've witnessed firsthand? Yeah, well, I, I mean, my mind immediately goes to the quintessential example, example of that in Scripture, you know, where Nebuchadnezzar set up this massive golden statue and just commanded everybody to, to bow down to it. And Daniel and you know, his friends refused to do so. They were thrown in the fiery furnace, and God uh, rescued them. That's that's the quintessential example of government usurping its authority. We don't we don't face anything like that today, uh, but we do face a wide variety of of examples where the government is treating uh, traditional, conscientious Christian convictions as a form of bigotry 
that are worthy of punishment, and basically trying to get uh, Christians to bow down to a different idol. Now, it's not a golden statue, but it's the idol of diversity and you know, unfettered sexual autonomy. And you know, right now, we're uh, at the Beckett Fund, we're defending uh, Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia. Uh, for over 100 years, Catholic Social Services has been doing fantastic work recruiting families to provide loving homes for foster children. And it's, you know, it's one of over 20 organizations that are doing this work in Philadelphia. And the city of Philadelphia heard in the news that Catholic Social Services doesn't place children in the homes of unmarried couples or same-sex couples. And no same-sex couple had ever come to Catholic Social Services and asked for their help uh, in over 100 years. And if they did, Catholic Social Services would connect them with one of over 20 agencies that would help them. Uh, but that wasn't good enough for the city of Philadelphia. They decided to cut off all partnership with Catholic Social Services and shut them down uh, solely because of their religious beliefs about marriage. And that's basically the government telling a Catholic organization, unless you bow down to our vision of sexual autonomy, we're going to shut you down. I, I remember reading about that case when it, when it broke, and I saw that the Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia, they only placed about 2 or 3% of the total number of children who are placed in homes. So there was absolutely no problem with a same-sex couple or an unmarried couple going somewhere else to uh, other things being equal to, to, to adopt a child. And what occurred to me was these people, the secular state is totalitarian. That, I mean, a, a religious state wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't do the same thing uh, to, to a secular uh, agency. And that there we, we see the way in which the absolutist nature of, of this secular sexual revolution movement, that they, they want it all. They do not want pluralism. They, they, they want absolute control over things. And one little exception, nope, disallowed. Yeah, they, they, want, they want Catholic organizations to bow the knee to their view of sexuality. And, you know, as, as I said, in over 100 years, no same-sex couple had even asked Catholic Social Services to help them in that way. And there's no question there are over 20 other agencies that will provide that help. And ultimately, you know, when we defend these cases, we want to make the argument not just that this is unjust and you know government usurpation of its of its proper role, but it's also harmful to the rest of society. And, and you know we've we've compiled statistics showing that when the government has shut down Catholic adoption agencies in in Illinois, in D.C., you know the the placement rates go down in those areas, and children, you know, the ultimate ones who are harmed are children who would have otherwise been placed in loving homes, uh, but for these uh, religious ministries being shut down. So there's, there's a case to be made for religious freedom, both as an issue of justice uh, and as a social good. Now, this, this absolutist trend is, is actually a very new one. You mentioned uh, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Act, from the, the mid-'90s that passed the Senate. It passed the House unanimously, and it passed the Senate by a vote of 97 to 3. There was so much support back then, but now RIFRA is, is highly constitutional. That Indiana controversy, what, three or four years ago, that was just a, a RIFRA model. And yet 
And yeah, I mean, things have turned so fast. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it was RIFRA was signed into law by President Bill Clinton and celebrated by the ACLU. And, you know, fast forward 25 years, the question is, what has happened? What has changed? And you know, I address this in, in Free to Believe. I think there are a number of cultural currents that contribute to this. Uh, but if you had to pick one thing, it's, it's the fact that longstanding traditional Christian beliefs about absolute truth, about life, and about human sexuality, now, they may not have been universally accepted in the past, but they weren't viewed as all that controversial. And nowadays, those traditional Christian beliefs are viewed as a threat to progress in modern culture and something to be stamped out. And so that's why you see, especially, you know, that's why we had to take uh, the Little Sisters and stand with them in the U.S. Supreme Court, because their beliefs about human life were viewed as a threat to women's access to contraception and abortion. And that's why we're representing Catholic Social Services. You know, their, their views about marriage are viewed as a threat to progress on sexual autonomy. And so that's why the, the polarity has flipped so quickly on RIFRA. There's just an effort to treat uh, uh, traditional Christian beliefs as a threat and to stamp them out. You know, I was talking with some, some academic friends who were very anti-Donald Trump and they were wondering how could Christians, how could Catholics ever support Donald Trump? And I mentioned to them, well, do you know the, the, the story of the Little Sisters of the Poor? They didn't know. They hadn't heard that. Now, the fact that they hadn't heard about the Little Sisters of the Poor, whom Donald Trump took off the hook uh, when he came into office, the fact that they hadn't heard it showed to me that the, the powers that be on, on the left and the Democratic Party, they realized that that case was an embarrassing one to them. It had very bad optics to, to present these, uh, these nuns who devote themselves tirelessly to the neediest, the, the, the greatest suffering, these people are villains? You, you really want to haul them before the court? You really want to interrogate them, put them up against the wall? How? how? Yeah, and it, it was a completely unnecessary conflict that the Obama administration provoked there because the, the most powerful government in the world does not need to use Catholic nuns in order to deliver contraception. There, there are any number of ways the government can ensure access to contraception without telling the little sisters, you must include this in your health insurance plan or we're gonna levy multi-million dollar fines. So, you know, fortunately the, the Supreme Court saw through that and, and to the Trump administration's credit, uh, they fixed that bad regulation. Uh, another regulation that flew even further under the radar was at the end of the Obama administration, the Department of Health and Human Services issued a regulation requiring doctors and hospitals across the country to perform and participate in uh, so-called gender transition procedures uh, in violation of their religious beliefs and medical judgment, or else they would be deemed to be discriminating based on uh, gender identity. And so uh, my firm, the Beckett Fund, represented a Catholic hospital system and coalition of doctors challenging that regulation under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and, and the Administrative Procedure Act, saying you just cannot force doctors and hospitals to perform procedures in violation of both their conscience and their medical judgment. And we got a great court ruling on that, you know, putting that regulation on hold. And then again, to the, to the Trump administration's credit, you know, far from perfect, but HHS has proposed rescinding that bad regulation 
and returning to normalcy. So you know, this also just points out how important uh, federal agencies are nowadays, because so many threats to religious freedom are coming uh, not necessarily from democratically enacted laws, but from unaccountable administrative agencies. Right. Chapter five is called, Is Discrimination Evil? The question is, how do Christians uphold biblical truth and not sound discriminatory? Yeah, the, the fanatical devotion to the, the principle of non-discrimination is really one of, the, one of the most problematic sacred cows today. And yet, there is some really good Supreme Court precedent on this. There are two cases I talk about in this chapter. One, uh, Corporation of the Presiding Bishop of the uh, Mormon Church versus Amos. And that was a, a, a case where the Supreme Court ruled nine to zero, upholding uh, a federal law that recognizes the right of religious organizations to hire people who agree with their core religious beliefs. And I think uh, you know, folks naturally get this, you know, even, even on the left, for example, like a, an environmental organization, everybody gets that environmentalist organization is not going to hire climate change deniers. And, you know, Planned Parenthood is not going to hire uh, pro-life employees. Uh, and so when it comes to religious organizations, you know, a mission-driven religious organization should not be forced to hire somebody who uh, rejects its core religious beliefs. That's not discrimination in any meaningful sense. So we have some good court opinions on this, uh, but when it comes to issues of sexual morality, when it comes to issues of abortion, there are still attempts to force religious groups to violate their religious principles. I mean, we're representing multiple Catholic schools right now. I'm representing the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, which has been sued by three different Catholic school educators who entered same-sex marriages in flagrant violation of their own employment contracts uh, and were dismissed, and yet they've turned around and sued, trying to say that this is discrimination. Why, why, Luke, why do they want to work for a place that is, in principle and in, in, in writing, contrary to, to what they see as themselves? Why, why do they want to work there? Yeah, it, I ask myself the same question, but I think for at least some of them, they want to work there because they want to change the institution. Some of them call themselves Catholic, but they disagree with the church's teaching on marriage and they want to change it. Uh, they want to advocate for a change, and so they want to advocate for change from within. And, you know, you, you can try that uh, if you want, but you don't have a legal right to, to get the government to come be behind you and force the Catholic Church to insert you there as, as a so-called agent for change. Now, religious organizations have a fundamental constitutional right and even a pre-constitutional right to organize themselves as they see fit. And so that, that's the type of ruling that we're aiming to get from the courts in these cases. I'm, I'm still looking around for those organizations such as Plant Parenthood and the ACLU that are being sued by people who've gone to work for them who are uh, fundamentalist Christians who are filing suit against Planned Parenthood for not respecting their, their religious beliefs. Do, do we have any plants like that uh, uh, operating, any agents uh, undercover <laughs> trying to bring them down? Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe, uh, you know, you turn the tables and, and things would look a bit different. But it, it seems to be much more common with religious organizations. Uh, you, you tell, you tell a, a, a rather infuriating story in, in Chapter 7, uh, the story of Betty and Dick Odgard 
Who were they and what happened to them? Yeah, Betty and Dick were ordinary folks in Iowa. They heard about a, an old church building that was up for sale. It was going to be torn down and turned into a gas station, uh, and they decided to buy it. They turned it into, they preserved all the religious elements of the sanctuary, and they turned it into an art gallery to display Betty's artwork, and they turned it into a wedding venue where they would personally you know, help couples make their day as special as possible. And they ran this, you know, in uh, Ames, Iowa for many years. Then a same-sex couple approached them and said, we want you to help us plan and execute our same-sex wedding in your sanctuary. And, you know, Dick and Betty, they had hired LGBT individuals as employees. They had served LGBT individuals in the past, but they simply didn't feel like in good conscience, they could help plan and execute and be there at a same-sex wedding. Uh, so the same-sex couple filed a complaint, uh, went after them. They faced tremendous amount of vitriol and they were embroiled in legal proceedings. Uh, and we represented Dick and Betty and you know they're they're peaceful people, and they looked ahead. You know they they saw the years of litigation that this would take, and they just decided you know it's not worth it to us to be you know spend the next five years in litigation. So they decided to you know pay several thousand dollars to the couple, settle a lawsuit, stop holding weddings in their facility. Uh, unfortunately, without that income, they couldn't. Uh, keep up their business, so they had to shut down. They, uh, but they did sell the the building to a Christian church, and it's now used as a church. And you know, you talk to Dick and Betty, and they are they don't regret this at all. I mean, it was painful, but they are glad that they stood up for their conscience and did what they believe God was calling them to do. Uh, one thing you note is that during litigation, uh, it came out that the men had already gotten married months before, and that this looked like a, a targeting, right, a setup to try to take down uh, a, a, dev a devout couple. Yeah, that was, a, that was a surprise to us that, you know, they had actually gotten married several months before they came to Dick and Betty and said, will you host our same-sex wedding? So it did look like a setup, and you know, this is, unfortunately, it's not uncommon to, to see this, both in the context of same-sex marriages. I mean, there are, there are wedding vendors that have been uh, test shopped and harassed by uh, LGBT rights activists to try to uh, get them in trouble. Uh, we've also seen this in the in the abortion and and uh, life context where you know I've represented pharmacists that Christian pharmacists that were test shopped by people who you know they had they had purchased the morning after abortion pill at a pharmacy down the road, but then they still come in and say give us the morning after pill, and then they file complaints with the government when, uh, when the Christians won't dispense it. So this sort of test shopping is really you know, folks trying to, to bring the fight to people of conscience and use the power of government to crush them. Look, this can't be, because the motto of the progressive sexual left is live and let live. Yeah, live and let live until you disagree with us, and then uh, we'll, we'll have the government let you live the way we want you to live. You know, it, it reminds me a bit of the Jack Phillips case, the Colorado Baker, in which the media reported it as Colorado Baker refuses to serve same-sex couple, whereas the fact is he would have he would have sold them one of his cakes off the shelf. He would have he had he had gay customers in the past many times. He just didn't want to produce, to design, to create a same-sex wedding cake 
for them. You can take any cake you want. Do with it whatever you want when you leave this store. Uh, I, I, I have to think that this is, again, a campaign to go after, to eliminate from the field. You're, you're, you've got to take your faith and, and get out uh, or, or we're not, we're not going to leave you alone. Yeah. And, and you see this where, uh, folks on the LGBT rights side of these cases, they try to draw an analogy to race discrimination and the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And how do you say, distinguish this kind of discrimination from racial discrimination? Yeah. So there, there are several very significant differences. And most importantly, uh, our, our country has a uniquely tragic history of race discrimination. There are over 300 years of slavery based on race, civil war fought over race, and government-imposed segregation based on race. And so you had systematic and pervasive barriers for African Americans to participate fully in the economic, social, and political life of our community. And for that reason, the government was given powerful tools to dismantle racism. Uh, tools that it hasn't been given for any other form of discrimination, including sex discrimination, religious discrimination, you know, age, marital status, disability, and so forth. And so you see, throughout the law, uh, our legal system treats race differently. You know, just one example would be like in the context of employment. All 50 states ban race discrimination in employment, and there generally are no religious exemptions for that. Uh, but when it comes to sexual orientation discrimination, uh, only 22 states ban that in employment, and all 22 of those states have religious exemptions. And this is a recognition that different kinds of quote-unquote discrimination warrant different kinds of legal treatment. And even the Supreme Court recognizes this. I mean, most prominently, if you look at the Supreme Court's 1967 decision in Loving versus Virginia, where it struck down bans on interracial marriage, the court recognized those bans and called them invidious relics of white supremacy uh, and the ideology underlying those bans as something that needed to be stamped out. Uh, but fast forward to 2015 in Obergefell, uh, when the Supreme Court recognized same-sex marriage, it went out, you know, you can criticize that decision on multiple grounds, but the court did go out of its way to, to say the opposite and say traditional marriage laws are based on decent and honorable religious and philosophical premises that have been long, long been held by people in good faith uh, for throughout the world, and, and that those beliefs are worthy of protection. So even the Supreme Court has recognized the difference. And the bottom line is the, the scope of the problem with race discrimination and quote-unquote sexual orientation discrimination is, is dramatically different. Uh, and nowadays we're talking about a very, very small number of conscientious objectors with a very narrow objection to participating in specific ceremonies. And th these are not religious people saying, we won't serve you at our lunch counter. These are religious people saying, hey, we can't actually join you in celebrating your marriage in what is for us a religiously fraught ceremony. Uh, but you know, same-sex couples have dozens and dozens of vendors uh, clamoring for their business, and there's no real barrier. Uh, to getting the services they need. The book is Free to Believe, The Battle of Religious Liberty in America. Thank you, Luke Goodrich. Thank you so much for having me.